Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and on this episode I am delighted to be joined by Nick Bailey, who is the founder and owner of Elan PR. Welcome to Rear View, Nick. I'd like to start off by asking why start Elan PR? Well, hello and thank you very much for having me. A real privilege. Um, why did I start Elan PR? Well, I was working for another agency before and the agency was growing very, very quickly. It was a PR agency. And I really just wanted to do the car stuff. So I decided to create Elan just over three years ago to focus purely on automotive. That's where my passion is. That's where my interest is. It's where I spend all my free time. So it just seemed to make sense to do that rather than wind turbines or heat pumps. <laughs> well, it's quite a brave step as well, going off on your own. Yeah. And... I think well, did that cause nerves or uh, I yeah, you're always nervous of something that's a change but a lot of my friends were very supportive and said go and do it and you're in charge of your own destiny and the previous agency I'd actually set up with somebody else so we had it as a partnership and oh, we, right, okay. we still work together so we've been doing some projects um, for that agency actually today uh, yeah. on metal matrix composites which you might remember from things like the lotus elise so uh, mm -hmm. they asked us to get involved for the automotive insight so no it's it's good right well we'll explore more about uh, lampr and the type of stuff you do and the type of client you have uh, further on but let's let's go back to the beginning into the myths of time <laughs> yes and find out uh, when do you know or have you been told you first got interested in the motoring world and automotive things? Well, I think it was literally uh, as soon as I was born, I was uh, immersed in that world. And I have my dad and my granddad to thank for that. So I grew up in the northwest in Cheshire. Every weekend without fail, I would go with my dad to a motorsport event or two events or three events and he, ne he never didn't take part he wasn't a competitor he was just an enthusiast mm -hmm. and he still goes today he still has a season ticket for Alton Park so uh, I know he was there for the touring cars the other week and mm. we would go to Alton Park in the morning and then at night time we would go to crew and watch the banger racing and then on Sunday we'd probably go to three sisters and watch motorbike racing or carts um, my poor mum. So perhaps it's as much done to my mum being so um, amenable and uh, allowing us to go that uh, that I had that from an early age. So I can remember very vividly, even on a Tuesday night, um, going to Aintree. There used to be a yep. practice on a Tuesday night. So we would sneak off to that. So from from the earliest time, and that's all I've ever been interested in is cars. So it sounds like it's a it's it's like the full gap. Well, first of all, it sounds like um, your mum just wanted you out. You lot out. <laughs> please, please get from under my feet. Yeah, <laughs> you're more hassled than it's worth. <laughs> um, but secondly, it sounds like it's the full. It, it's just motorsport. It wasn't. Oh, it, it it has to be you know touring cars or it has no. to be single seaters. It was the whole gambit, it was which is everything. And that's I think that's been really useful in uh, the work that I do today. That. Uh, I went from everything from production car trials. Uh, I remember going to a rally one night in a quarry. It was a school night and my mum helped <laughs> me to do my homework so I could go and nip to a rally on a Wednesday night. Um, night rallies used to go sort of late at night and go and watch the road rallying before that sort of got tightened down. Everything. And then even sort of in the late 
80s, went to Formula One, went to Hockenheim to a Grand Prix. So, oh wow, everything, that must have been special. Yeah, it was just um, total immersion. I had no escape. But my brother, who's a little bit younger than me, but he has no interest in cars, not not at all bothered. So it, you used it all up. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think I took the whole lot. But my granddad was interested in cars, and I remember in his garage, um, they there were tins of. Um, green paint because he used to have Lotus Cortinas and stuff like that still sticks with me today. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Cause it, cause it's interesting, but so, quite a few of the guests that come on here, it isn't something driven by the family. It just happened. They just happened to be like that, but it, one would always suspect or would presume that it, you know, there is a, a strong family lead that, you know, we, we always went to this, show or whatever or we always had these cars and went to clubs to do with voxels or something like that but it's not always the case so it's it's interesting to hear that you know it it definitely was in the dna um right you know from your granddad down yes i think that's true um it wasn't that we had friends that did racing that we went along to watch although that sort of came a bit later it was he just liked to go and watch himself and uh yeah, wherever it was, we would go. It was uh, that Northwest is a very rich scene for motorsports. I mean, things like the Manx Rally, I went to that, um, all sorts of things. But brilliant! What what an education! And I'm hugely privileged because that set me up to be, in inverted commas, credible with some of our clients that you know, we mm-hmm. understand their world a little bit. So uh, yeah, I'm forever grateful for my parents for for giving me that. So when you're going through school, were you? Uh, were you thinking, oh, I want to do something in in automotive? Or was it just a case of I'm just doing the stuff in school and then I do this outside? Um, Yeah. So what was unusual, and I think this is one of the big takes that I've had from growing up, is at school I was the only person interested in cars. No one else in my year had any interest so sometimes I'd take a friend to a rally but they just came for the novelty value everything was football or cricket or or whatever um Mm. and then as you grow up it's quite interesting that you start to meet people who are you think you're the most passionate person about touring cars or rallying or banger racing and then suddenly you meet people that know much more than you or are just (laughs) as passionate and that's that was a real shock about growing up at school nobody cared about cars and if I'd been to an interesting event they didn't ask me questions or think it was cool it was a bit strange I suppose to like cars everyone liked football you know you've got people like Liverpool and Manchester around the corner there was a lot of that yeah. interest in it I remember in my first year at school um, they had a competition who could get the most merits and they won an Everton football uh, club signed team picture and uh-huh. they were all gunning for it and I actually won it but it meant nothing to me but um yeah if it had been a car one it would have been uh, something else but i think i've still got it uh, maybe one day I'll, I'll get rid of it but um that is different isn't it and particularly with social media you now have even the opportunity to meet and engage people that like peugeot 205s or escorts yeah. or whatever it's incredible that there's so many people out there you don't realize absolutely i, th- I think social media has uh I'm not saying breathe new life, but has has definitely breathed life back into um, very you know sub niches because people know that there's others out there that yeah. like it. I mean, the internet has been wonderful for that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, everybody knows the story. The, the Motoring Podcast wouldn't happen if it wasn't wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for social media because Alan and I would never have 
come across each other. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it is... For as much as we can knock social media, and there's plenty to knock about it, generally in the motoring corner, it's pretty good. Yeah. And generally people are pretty respectful until you start getting to talk about Teslas and things like that. <laughs> then, then that becomes yeah. a bit different. Yeah. <laughs> but if But people will accept that other people like particular cars and don't like cars that they like and all that and that's fine and everybody seems generally to get on and that's i think that's just wonderful yeah and i think it's such a a huge resource so recently i had a 205 rally the european mm. one the, the sort of uh, homologation car there aren't that many here so it's difficult to find information but through instagram i found a guy who had one and he was super helpful um for finding things like the stickers that go under the deck or where do they go exactly uh, and yeah. things like that that 20 years ago would have been a real headache, a real heartache to try and do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so you're, you're going through school and you're the only car-orientated person yeah. there. <laughs> How big was your school? <laughs> uh, well, it was probably about five or 600 students. My okay. claim to fail the school was Gary Barlow from Take That was in the year above me. So uh, ah, okay. that ages me, but also uh, perhaps there's a music interest in the school. At what point, if as you're going through um, school, did you think, oh, I could maybe do something? Or was that, did it never cross your mind until later on? Uh, it didn't really cross my mind. I remember the careers teacher, uh, a careers advisor, suggesting that I took an apprenticeship at Halewood, which is the mm -hmm. Ford factory, which is half an hour from work. And some of my friends' dads work there. I remember that. Um, but it... I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to do my A-levels and I wanted to go to university. Mm. And um, I was also very interested in languages, which is something I'm sure we'll sort of cover a bit later. So uh, French was something I was very keen on. Love French cars, love going to France to um, to see that. It seemed so different to living in the Northwest. It was very exotic, I suppose. <laughs> yes. If you've only been to the Isle of Man, it's quite... Uh, quite special <laughs> so I wanted to carry on that so I did my A-levels in design and uh, French and geography and that led mm -hmm. me to going to university in Coventry um, and doing a, a combined engineering course with languages and that's really how things started to define because obviously Coventry huge motor city yeah. you're a lot more aware of the opportunities and I did a year in France, which I loved, so it gave me a lot of uh, French language skills. And when I came back from that, there was a note on the notice board in the students' area saying, we're looking for someone who has an automotive knowledge and can speak uh, French. So it, it just seemed obvious to me <laughs> to apply for the job. <laughs> and uh, that was my first job, and it was in Coventry. So what was that doing? Well, uh <laughs> Rather strangely, I was a quality engineer for a company called Broza, which manufactured window regulators. So that's the mechanism that's inside the inside the door of a car that allows the window mm -hmm. to go up and down. Yep. And uh, they were looking for a quality engineer. So part of my role was to manage uh, quality of the products and then to liaise with the French manufacturers. So my first two projects was uh, with a 406 Peugeot. Okay. and the Renault Espace of that time. So my job, and nobody wanted to do this in the factory, 
they thought it was brilliant that I was there, was to go to France for weeks on end uh, and spend time in the car factory resolving the quality issues or if something came up on the production line to defuse it so you didn't get a, a fine or mm-hmm. uh, demarked as a supplier. Uh, and to me, that was just incredible to have been in no way sort of shown the automotive world. And these guys have actually said, you go, what do you need? Do you want to come back at the weekends? I was like, no, just leave me out there. It's fine. Um, <laughs> and to be in the Peugeot factory, sort of seeing the cars being knocked out, it, it, it's such an incredible thing. And I think if anyone hasn't been to a car factory, there's lots of tours these days. I think Mini does a tour. Just go and see because it is it's phenomenal. If you if That mystique is is smashed in one sense because you see how it all comes together. But it, mm. it was brilliant. And I got the guys there to take me to all the different parts. So please take me to the the stamping plant and see the sides of the Peugeots being stamped and the paint shop. Uh, I, I loved it. It was it was incredible. And that really set me off in the, in the car industry. So how long were you doing that for then? Um, so I was probably doing that for about four or five years. And mm-hmm. uh, so I started to work on other projects. So things like uh, the Volvo V40 and the Mitsubishi. Mm-hmm. I worked on that. I worked on Land Rover Freelander, uh, XK. So lots of different cars, but my prime focus was the French ones. And mm-hmm. you had to go to the Alpine factory at Dieppe, which was really oh, cool because they were building that. So that must have been a real trial. Oh, yeah. Thing. And the guy was building <laughs> the Renault Spider at the time was in production. Yeah. And they took me out. And that, stuff like that was just wow uh, how lucky am i how fortunate am i to be able to be being paid to do this sort of thing mm. so so while you're out there if you're if you're spotting were you refining design as well um as part bits, of the quality yeah. control so um for example one of my first jobs uh was when you slam the door on a peugeot 406 uh, it used to rattle and the guys gave me some rubber dampers and sent me off to France to the engineering department and um, I had to find the solution that when they did the slam test so they really slam a car door in a slam test uh, it didn't cause the glass to rattle against the the metal uh, brackets inside mm-hmm. and you know, that was my first time going to a, an R&D centre rather than a production centre. And there were, you know, the, the, it was just littered the workshop with prototype cars, facelifted cars. And for someone who's only ever seen sort of spy shots in car magazines, it's just, it was mind blowing. And I'd be saying to the engineer, oh, is that the new 106? And he'd be like, yeah, don't talk about that. So... <laughs> kind of to temper my enthusiasm and stay cool, but um, it was it was an incredible experience. And before um, before smartphones, so uh, yeah. you, you couldn't you couldn't be that leak. No, you couldn't be that leak. <laughs> um, and I think when you work on those projects, and I've been really fortunate to work on lots of new projects and concept cars. Um, yeah, there's just a, a rule of trust, and the mm, more yeah, that yeah. you're trusted, the more things that you get involved in. After this, what, what did you move on to after this? Because, um, I mean, it sounds like this is pretty difficult to top uh, well, already. Well, I don't know. Already. Because, <laughs> it was really cool. I mean, there were some, uh, there were some really bad things that we had to do. For example, when it, if you ever had a failure, 
you had to reassure the client that no other failures would happen. So I remember going to the Volvo factory in Ghent and literally spending days going around the uh, field, opening every car door, checking the window, regulator work, closing the car door, literally days doing that. So there were some grim days too. Um, but as a first job, no complaints. And then one of my friends at the time, so this is like late 90s, uh, left the company in Coventry and he started to work at Alpine. So the car stereo people who are based yep. in Milton Keynes. And at that time, Alpine was very well known for its aftermarket products. So you probably remember the Lamborghini that featured in a lot of their adverts at the time. Mm. But the car industry was changing and the vehicle manufacturers were looking for more integrated systems. And he said, why don't you leave the manufacturing world of uh, window regulators and come and do some uh, sort of project engineering, project management. So I did, and it was a big change. It was something I hadn't done before, but uh, Alpine was a company that had a great reputation in audio, a Japanese manufacturer, mm. and the car manufacturers really wanted to work with them. So at that time, I think my first project was uh, Land Rover Discovery, 38A okay. Range Rover and Rover 75. So I think my first week we went to Rover and uh, saw the first uh, prototype uh, 75s. So mm -hmm. again, really cool. And I was managing the the, uh, the project from a supplier point of view. So lots of different skills, getting prototype parts in, getting sign off. Uh, great time, really enjoyed it. Uh, how early typically in in say just pulling the 75 as an example yeah. and i know you weren't there from the possibly from the very beginning but um how early would a, a manufacturer bring um a supplier in oh. on something like that uh for parts like uh head units an integrated system i think it would probably be about three years before job one so job one is, okay. is the date of uh, mass production so again one of the coolest things that um I did was to go to Longbridge to see the very first uh, R50 minis being built in a shed uh -huh. uh, and that again it's work but uh, I had <laughs> prototype parts that come from Japan and the Japanese made really beautiful uh, highly skilled uh, first working prototypes a lot of parts in those car those early prototypes are very rough they're handmade but the mm. Japanese guys were beautiful and I took um, navigation screens and head units for the mini up to the factory and then we saw the first sort of batch of 20 being built and that was like wow just amazing for an enthusiast oh i know you've got to keep quiet for so long <laughs> yeah definitely well i remember one day in our <laughs> workshop we had a mini prototype and an x-type prototype side by side because we were working on both those projects way before they were launched you just think what that price that pitch would have had if you, if you could do social media now yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> how long were you with uh, alpine uh so i was with them for about seven years so up until okay so what sort of cars then have you you've, you've done the mini uh the... so mini then uh rover 75 and then i worked on jaguar cross car line so that was s type uh x type xj and then I worked on the next discovery, so the one before the one today. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I only know them by the project project names, not like 38 and R40 and, uh, <laughs> and R50. I don't really know the car names. Um, and then uh, what else did I work on? I worked on uh, the first of the revitalized MG. So that was one of my accounts. So I worked on... Oh, right. Uh, it was X80, which is the Mangusta-based MG. What's that called? SB, is it called? The sort of uh, V8 car that they only built about 50 of. That one. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. So I worked on that and uh, did the sound system of that. And then the ZR, ZS, ZT, mm-hmm. TF, uh, all of those sort of cars as well. And then at that time, I was doing a lot of uh, concept car work, so... That's how I started to move into marketing uh, and then eventually PR is that uh, in Alpine, there was nobody doing the marketing promotions. When we had a new business pitch, so if Jaguar said, we're going to do a new XJ, we want to know what your ideas are. Should it have a tape deck? Should it have a CD? That was the kind of discussions that were had at that time. Um, You'd also try and do concept cars. And I did a lot of uh, very advanced sort of uh, new technology for the concept cars of that time so things like cx75 rd6 which is the sort of small coupe which yeah. we did uh, we did a screen that came out of the dashboard which is quite novel we had a screen which is dual view so if the passenger could see something different the idea was always to come up with something oh, very yeah, clever yeah, yeah. Um, that would appeal for a concept car so i did a lot of those and i'm still in contact with the guys today at, at jlr um, and we do things with clients today like uh, as a pr thing so what can we show on this concept car that would be quite interesting i still think the dual view um, screens are a great idea yeah very much so and it's very simple it's only a shutter in front of the glass it it appears much more technologically advanced it's very clever but that was a cool thing to do that um seeing those concept cars right from the start was uh, again a massive privilege and so what did you where did you move on to after that was that was it still with Alpine and you moved into yeah. properly into the marketing? So then I started to do much more of the marketing for Alpine, moved away from the general project management and was doing all of the new projects. So uh, pitching for uh, Discovery at that time. And then um, there was the next generation of Jaguar, so uh, XK, I think was one of the last ones I did. Uh, and then I moved to a, another PR agency. So I'd done... I started to sort of uh, be responsible for journalist visits at Alpine. And then I moved to another mm-hmm. PR agency because they said, well, uh, you seem to like this. And I liked the idea of telling the stories. So I moved there and uh, worked there for five or six years and then set up that agency, the, the joint agency I talked about before. Okay. So what were you, when you were you showing the uh, journalists about, what, what how... Because this is one of the questions I have. How do you do this with, you know, because so many people are used to, oh, here's the car. Oh, and it's got an infotainment system or and it's got this emergency braking or, you know, it's the car and these things. So when you're doing the and these things, how do you get people interested in that? Because that's for a lot of people, they're there to go, can I make it? Can smoke come off the wheels as I go around the corner? That yeah. sort of that sort of stuff. So how do, how do you try and get the interest and excitement of people on on these stuff that isn't what people would typically expect to be uh, 
paying attention to, but they should be. Yeah, and I think that's that's our challenge. Um, but I think that's also our space uh, in the mm-hmm. PR world. So when we speak to clients, we say that we're not we're not a fluffy PR agency, and I don't mean that derogatory not too much anyway about some of the other <laughs> automotive agencies but um because uh, i've sort of been through that world and sat down with the engineers sat down with the designers i've been had the tellings off on the production line because something didn't fit we tell our clients we understand their world so we don't understand every aspect of how uh, 5g antennas work but we understand what the decision makers are looking for Mm. Uh, and I think that's why uh, and I hope that's one of the reasons why our clients trust us that uh, we tell the messages that are relevant to uh, our clients and I think just as an example the 5G antenna uh, which is a Harman product one of our bigger uh, clients we made two different versions of the story so you have to understand your audience well. So we had an aversion that went to the specialist automotive engineering and electronics press talking about package size, uh, relevance to specification. But then to try and reach some of the more consumer guys, we found the picture of a Chevrolet, I think it was, with 15 antennas on it. And yeah. we told the story that you'll be able to, the car of the future, the connected car of the future will have, will need 18 antennas, but don't worry, your car won't look like this. Uh, Harman has the solution. So <clears throat> I think that's that's hopefully why we're different as an agency is we, we understand the world that we're working in. No, that, no, that, that's good because I mean that, well, one, you obviously don't like an easy life, but um, <laughs> also, also it, it, it must, it, from the outside, it looks very tricky because uh, it's easy for people to get excited about, uh, you know, the new Jag, the new Lamborghini, the new the new whatever. Yeah. It's very easy. But to, to take out a, a component part of that, which is, which people just presume is there and works, because that's a, that's a lot of these things, you know, particularly you know, if we're talking infotainment, yeah. people expect that to work. Yeah. And... You know, the the time it doesn't it gets mentioned usually is because it doesn't work as someone expects. Yeah. So to to get people interested in that is you know that takes skill in itself. So I don't I don't envy you. <laughs> no, and I think what was really fascinating is we we as an agency we don't have a lot of um, consumer product. We don't do the PR for a vehicle manufacturer, um, which I think we would love to do. Uh, it would be a little bit easier. And for example, at the start of this year, we helped Steeda, uh, which is mm-hmm. a Ford tuning specialist, launch their uh, Enforcer in the UK. We had the car at Autosport show. And it was so easy. We called up people like such as Top Gear, Evo, uh, Autocar, and they were just desperate for the pictures and desperate to drive the car. And it, it is a very different scenario than if you've got a 5G antenna. Uh, yeah. I, I did see the. Can we other talk side. about this head unit? Do, well, actually, um, I'm really sorry, but I've got to. Uh... Yeah, it's, um, it was. It was like, wow, is it always it was always this easy that people clamour for your your time, and your your products? So it was a, it was an eye opener. 
But um, I think we are seeing things change. And I saw Car Magazine yesterday uh, had a feature about MBUX, which is the new user interface, and they'd done a video on social media. Uh, that's that's also a Harman uh, project that they're involved mm-hmm. in. So would Car, car Magazine have done uh, a specific feature on one component in one car? Probably not, but people are starting to to realize that this is interesting and it's what consumers want to see. Well, I think uh, reporting on cars now is becoming more, you're becoming more of a techn- technology mm. journalist as well because of all the stuff that goes behind these systems. And it's, it's trying, it, it, I mean, it's something I think um, we've seen, I think it's got better recently, but we have seen not so long ago, say we just talk about uh, autonomous vehicles, which is possibly one of my many hobby horses, but <laughs> the way that was reported is you could see that people didn't understand what they were being told. Yeah. And things got through as a consequence that probably shouldn't have without challenge. And now you're seeing pushback, um, particularly. I mean, because it was, um, was it, I think the UK insurers came out and said we've got to stop saying autonomous because the public now believe that these cars drive themselves mm-hmm. and they don't. You know, we, we we need to change the language, and it's that's. I mean, that's part of your job. Not in not autonomous vehicles, by the way. I'm not saying you, <laughs> but that's <laughs> part of your job is to. Uh, is to help educate the journalists so that they can then let the public know, isn't it? Yeah, I think that is a role. Um, and there, there are some extremely savvy journalists, particularly in the automotive world. I think that's a very uh, interesting aspect about our media is that 99% of the automotive journalists are interested in cars they might have an interesting car at home or mm. an interest in the industry or an aspect of it where when you're doing pr for uh, metal matrix composites for example the guy at the composites magazine probably isn't passionate about composites in the same way mm. uh, he probably hasn't got a selection of textiles in his garage or, uh, that sort of thing <laughs> and it's it's uh, it is easier in that aspect respect that talking to car journalists you can find much more common ground whereas the others Mm. it's just about right how are we going to change their perceptions about this product this technology this company what are our best methods of achieving that and that's what POL is all about it's about changing perceptions you don't know about something or you have a perception about something and we need to change it that's that's all it is it's no rocket science Mm -hmm. okay so what are some of the um, projects you've worked on when you you uh, co-founded the agency uh so the agency before elan yes before elan yeah um so let me think about some of them i was working on uh automatic truck and bus transmissions uh simulator companies uh i started working with A simulator for, what, for <coughs> sorry uh, driving me, simulator yeah so is that just is that for racing or just so the client at that time was uh, primarily for motorsport applications. Okay. Uh, today I have a different client uh, who produces driver-in-the-loop simulators, a company called Ansible Motion, who does very, very high-end engineering class sims. So that's a lot of work around ADAS, uh, as in driver assistance, mm-hmm. uh, autonomous driving, so you can simulate the scenarios in the sim. It's much safer mm-hmm. than trying to do that in a real car with... Oh yes, uh, everyday people, <laughs> and I think that's that's a really good point that 
everyday drivers don't react like test drivers to cars taking over, uh, warning signs, cars braking for themselves. So mm. simulators provide a really good environment, safe environment, repeatable environment to do that. So simulation was a really big topic at that agency. And then I started working with Falcon Tires at that time, which is a client that I work with still today. Um, and that's such a fun client. Uh, tires are perceived to be a bit boring, a distressed purchase, but there's lots of really interesting sides to that as well. Yeah, because, um, I mean, again, that's one of those, it's a consumable item and we just expect them to work, but tyres are not the same, are they? No. And there, there's a there's a big, there is so much, I mean, this is only something I've discovered since starting the Merging Podcast and, you know, really being able to get hold of such literature. But the the investment and the R&D that goes into these is mm. just phenomenal, really. Yeah. There's some really clever things that are happening today and into the future. So uh, lots of work on compounds, uh, tyre construction to minimise uh, rolling resistance because that's critical for electric and hybrid vehicles to increase range and tyres can play their part. But also, the, as you say, the investment in terms of the numbers of tyres that are being produced and sold is phenomenal. I actually went to a tyre show in Cologne uh, two, three weeks ago with Falcon and the number of Chinese tyre manufacturers that you've never heard of that are selling tyres in Europe is incredible. The scale of the market's huge. Mm. How long were you uh, at that there before you decided, right, cars are the way? I'm cars off. is the only way. Cars is what I'm going to do. So about... Uh, I think I was there for five years and then set up Elan in 2015. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, 2015. So I think we've been going about three and a half years now. And um, just to let people know, what's the sort of spread of clients you've got? So uh, our biggest clients are the brands that people have probably heard of. So people such as Harman, you'll probably mm -hmm. know their sound systems, Harman Kardon. They have lots more, JBL, Mark Levinson, most Bang & Olufsen in the car. There's so many brands that are involved with Harman. Uh, Falcon Tires, uh, people will probably know those guys too. And then we've got some very specialist companies. So as I mentioned, Ansible Motion. Uh, we also do the PR for the Lotus Driving Academy, which is an experience that happens yep. at uh, Hethel. Uh, then we've got people such as Callum Eilert, who is a, a professional racing driver, racing in GP3, uh, mm -hmm. who has joined the Ferrari Driver Academy. So that's been brilliant to work with the guys at Ferrari. I had a chance to go to Maranello uh, earlier this year, which again was uh, another tough another, day. Another box ticked, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we saw Vettel in the corridor and it's like, okay, this is this is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so a real spread of clients, uh, but all with a, an automotive theme. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's so diverse as well. Uh, but I think that reflects your interests from what you've said so far. It certainly reflects your interests in things. Um, but before, I don't want to go any further into a land because I want to um, pick your brains about the, the type of campaigns you've done and stuff like that a bit later on. But I want to go into your car history. Yeah. Now, I'm, I don't know yet, but I'm suspecting there may be a few French cars in there. There's a few. There's a few. Okay. 
There's okay. been a lot of so... cars. I've currently <laughs> banned from buying any more cars in his house at the moment, but uh, there's been a few. <laughs> uh, okay, then when did you pass your test? Uh, when I was 17. So I okay, think... 17 yes. in one day? or did No, you... not 17 in one you... day. Uh, <laughs> 17 and three or four months, something like that. Okay. In a Renault 5, there you go. Oh. It was a French car, yeah. <laughs> So what was the um, first car you drove after? Was it the uh, Renault 5? Uh, so my first car, and I actually learned to drive in this, was an MG Midget. So oh, okay. I got that just... But, you know, before. the traditional learner-driver vehicle. Yeah, uh, it's what everybody starts, isn't it? <laughs> um, so I, I started that. So I think my dad uh, bought that. It was a 1500 one, so rubber bumpers, obviously very safe for a novice driver. Uh and I think we got that just before I was 17. So I learned to drive in that. Mm-hmm. And then I kept that all the way through my studying. I took it to Coventry, had it there. Um, and then when I got my first job, I thought I probably need something a bit more reliable to get to work. I need to be there on time. This is important. So I bought a Citroen AX GT, which I bought in Lancashire, oh. uh, which was the 500 edition with leather seats. Um Oh, so, Gavin Braithwaite-Smith is jealous now. Yeah, <laughs> he's just had some Falcon tyres this week for a Citroen. There you go, there's a link. Um, so that, that was great. So I had those two cars because um, I kept them. I was just very sentimental about cars, so I didn't want to sell the midget. So I kept that until, I'm trying to think when, then I got uh, an MX-5. So I was just okay. spending money on cars, which has been the same since day one. So I bought a Mark One MX-5, just spent all I had. Uh, and then I bought an MGF. Okay. Which, uh, you can see a theme here of soft top, rear-wheel drive yeah, cars. Yeah, large family cars. Yeah, practical stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then I had that until I got the job at Alpine. And then when I joined Alpine, they said, you can have a company car. And what do you want? And uh, I said, what can I have? I said, well, you can have anything as long as it's got four seats. Uh, and preferably oh, right. <laughs> preferably one of our, well, within a budget range, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Preferably yeah. with uh, one of the clients. So Jaguar, that was obviously out from budget. Uh, Honda was a big client of Alpine's or Rover at the time. So uh, I got a Rover 200 VI, if you remember that car. Mm-hmm. And the first one that was delivered, really excited. It was in was in the uh, solid racing green colour, and had it three or four days. And then I was washing it at home, religiously, and I noticed one of the doors was metallic green, not solid green. So um, they took that one back and gave me another one. We have come on a long way since We have days. come a long way, yeah. But that was quite, um, I, was, I was thinking, that's really strange. It's reflecting in the light. And then, uh, yeah, it became obvious that it was actually metallic. <laughs> and how long did you have that for? Uh, so I think you had to keep them three years. So mm-hmm. I had that one. And then uh, the rules were a little bit more relaxed. And so I had uh, Alpha 156 as a company car. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and I managed to persuade the guy who was my boss, who was a car enthusiast, that I should have the big wing on the back. You remember that sort of homologation yeah. wing? <laughs> so uh, I had that until I left there. And then when I joined the first PR agency, again, the boss was a car enthusiast. So I got an Alpha GT. Again, four seats. Oh. So tick the box. <laughs> 
and then what did I have after that? I don't think what. Oh, then I had a three series, uh, three two five. Again, as company cars, so I've been. I was very, very lucky with <laughs> finding bosses who liked cars and could see the value in having interesting cars on the fleet. Yes, clearly. <laughs> uh, and then were you off to um, your co-founded one? Yeah. So BMW, by that time, so then, so then it's yeah. your own money. <laughs> then it was my own money. Uh, so uh, all of those things stopped. So the first car I bought was a Mazda three. Um, the what, the high performance version is like 250 brake. Is it MPS? MP, MPS. Yeah. yeah, I always yeah. call it an MP3, which annoys <laughs> Alan immensely every time I do it. Or so, an M3 or an MSP. Anyway, yeah, I know the one. So it's, it's yeah. got the it's got the vent in the bonnet. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. that was uh, that was me starting a business up and being practical. So hmm. um, I obviously, obviously, it was that. it was for MPG and it was a hatchback. I mean, what else? Yeah, for for seats, hugely practical. I don't think I kept that very long. Um, Then I started, well, actually, in parallel, I had uh, caterums. So at that time, (laughs) I was very keen on on caterums. We've skipped a few other cars here, but um, I've actually had, not all at once, but seven different caterums. They were just a real passion of mine. Uh, And I built a couple as well and raced a couple (laughs) Uh, so they were great fun do you still have your race license no uh, so when my first child was born uh i said this isn't really it's very selfish hobby motorsports it's expensive and it's time consuming so i bought an elise bought a type 49 elise and said i'm going to be sensible (laughs) sold a race car Um, but no i haven't done any racing since then that that was it just stopped we're going through uh multiple caterums yeah um you've got the mazda 3 what yeah. what happens after the mazda 3 uh, then we i'm trying to think what we had oh bmw one series so 120d mm-hmm. so very practical then a four-wheel drive 120d then a 135i it must have been a good year i must have had some good clients here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, extravagance and then uh recently uh, well, I've got an MX, so my wife and I swap, swap cars depending on who has to do the school run. So we have an MX-5 and we have uh, a 4 Series, which we've just recently got. Okay, so and the, what what MX-5 is it? It's the ND, so okay. it's the in the Mazda red colour. So it was it's we bought it used, but it had hardly any miles on it. I think it was a year old, but hadn't done any miles. And uh, I've just... The only thing I've done is change the exhaust. So I think you'll come on to my worries that cars are too quiet. So yeah. nearly all of the cars that have been <laughs> mine, I've changed the exhaust on, which probably getting a bit old for that, but uh, <laughs> it is a common theme, I'm afraid. So the Mazda's got a BBR exhaust, which, yeah, is popular. <laughs> Especially if you have an early start. Yeah, well, I changed it and I didn't say anything to my wife and said, have you noticed anything different? And after a week, she said not. So I thought I've got away with it. And I had to fess up and say, I changed the exhaust. So <laughs> if, it, if it's a week without being noticed, it's OK. There's a modification yeah. for a car. <laughs> OK, that's, that's your test. <laughs> that's, your, that's your benchmark. That's my benchmark, yeah. Uh, and what four series have you got? Is it uh, a five so- We've got the, yeah the uh, the five door so uh, the Grand Coupe which uh, 
is a bit grown up. I do like smaller cars, um, but my we've got two children. They're growing up. My son's knees were in my back driving in the one series, so we've just gone a little it's a bit, bit bigger after a while. Yeah, yeah. but so I think I think that 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 is the the five door four series is the best looking uh, BMW on the range. At the yeah, moment, I think it's it's a pretty shape. Yeah, yeah, and and having the extra doors in is obviously a makes it more practical. But I think I think that that just works really really well. Okay, yeah. well. Um, I have to say, I thoroughly dislike you for your fantastic car history. <laughs> as there are some absolutely... We had Milan as well at one time, which is, oh, which is again, see. kind of with the not helping. Uh, <laughs> and then the 205 Rally was a really cool, uh, it was a really cool car. That was, that was a favourite. Mm, I can imagine. How long did you have that for? Uh, well, I think I had it a couple of years, but a year of that, it was waiting to be painted. So I didn't see a oh, lot right. of it, but um, I think sometimes it's just nice to own uh, I, I enjoy owning the cars as well as using the cars. So mm-hmm. I've currently got a Mark II Escort, okay. um, which is since those days of going to Aintree and watching single venue rallies and Flukborough and places like that, you might know. Uh, it was always the Escorts, and they've they've just gone up in price crazily. So. I was going to say, you, that's a retirement nest egg there. Hope so. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> the way um, the prices are going, definitely. I if, just you, have... <laughs> if you can sell before any bubble bursts. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's, uh, that's the hope. But um, I just I just like having having that car. It's one that I've always wanted, and I'd done stuff like um, my wife will roll her eyes at this, but there was an, an old boy at the petrol station probably about mm-hmm. ten years ago with a Mark II Escort, and I just gave him a business card. Said, if you ever sell it please give me a call uh, and stuff like that. So uh, if I see a car that I like, um, always try and try and get it. <laughs> Excellent. Right, moving back to um, Elampia. Now, what are the sort of uh, campaigns or um, things that you've done for clients to just to, to help people get an understanding what, um, because you're, you're um, quite, a, you're a boutique yeah. PR agency, because yeah. uh, it's not like you've got hundreds of staff no. uh, or anything like that. You, how many is it that work for you? So uh, they all work really hard. <laughs> um, we're we're <laughs> between four and five um, okay. people. So we have some freelancers that help us, um, which is great because then you can tap into their contacts and resources and expertise. And what uh, I didn't say is I actually share the office space uh, we're in Shotford in Oxfordshire with another PR agency which is a, a more traditional B2B B2C so uh, reaching out to both consumers and trade agencies mm-hmm. so we've got a really nice feel that it's a bigger agency feel with economies of scale yeah um, but uh, they do totally different things but it, they know a lot of the TV people they know people at the national newspapers which perhaps we wouldn't always know or come into yeah. contact so uh, yeah. it's a great resource to, to draw upon so going back to my original question before yeah, i interrupted even myself uh <laughs> so what are the what are the sort of campaigns that you do so people can get a feel of uh the type of things that you've yeah that you do for these for these clients that like i mean i, I sound like i'm banging on about it but you know they're not the the most common names, you know, we're talking about parts of cars or yeah. um, racing drivers or, you know, stuff like this. So it isn't the the typical motoring 
or what people would expect the typical motor yeah, PR to be about. That's right. It's not the road test car that's supplied from a, a dealer fleet, a press fleet um, mm. for review. That's that's a very different world. I mean, we've as I say, we've done some of that with Steeder with their Mustang early this year. We can do it, but um, I think our heritage is in uh, understanding the technology and telling that story. So. Uh, one of our clients is Falcon Tires, as we've talked about, and we also support their social media. And we've done some really, what I would say, interesting stuff uh, with those guys. So, for example, we did a video stop animation video in Playmobil about the Nürburgring 24 Hours, which is their headline event, which mm-hmm. was just a lot of fun to try and tell people what the Nürburgring 24 Hour race is about. So you'll, if you watch it, you can find on the Falcon Facebook page, you'll see that there's a, it's a great atmosphere, but it also rains, so you need to change to wet tyres. It's very variable. Uh, we tried to get some of the messages. So I say, it's all about changing perceptions, PR. Um, with Harman, we do uh, a lot of work with journalists trying to help them to understand the technology. So we'll take journalists to the Consumer Electronics Show, which is the big show in Las Vegas. Uh, Harman yep. has a huge presence there. Uh, we'll take uh, journalists to Harman's technology centres. And we're currently working on some projects about how to listen to sound. So when you've got a road test editor, they are extremely experienced in assessing a vehicle's ride, handling, noise, vibration, harshness, that sort of thing. Perhaps they don't know how to listen for good audio. Some of them obviously do, but we want to train them, want to educate them into what to listen for in a car, how to stress a system, how to get the best out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And with, with Callum, uh, the young driver, we've been doing some work. Uh, so we had him on Sky driving rallycross cars earlier in the year, which was great fun to come watch that. Um, and lots of interviews, so working very closely with Ferrari to to tell his story it's it's quite difficult as a young driver um, to get the the space in the national press that formula one will take precedence but there are ways to tell that story and it's always about finding the right angle and and the interest to do that Mm -hmm. so in your opinion what makes good pr Uh, now that is a very good point i think the best uh, campaign is one that changes perception so if you've uh, educated the right audience with the, the what you want to tell them about um, then that is success so if you didn't know that uh, Falcon supplied tires to Volkswagen or tires to Skoda you you were worried that you had the perception that oh, they're just a mid-range brand but if we could show you that Volkswagen trusts these tyres and they trust them because they're manufactured to a certain quality standard. They have these features which will make sure that they give this wet weather grip or this fuel efficiency rating. Uh, and the next time you go to Quick Fit and the guy offers you Vulcan, you say, yeah, okay, I'll try that set. Then I think that's our job done. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, what are the challenges, do you think, particularly with the way technology is advancing to get the message across in a way that people can understand it, be engaged, um, so they're not bamboozled with buzzwords, which yeah. seems to be rife in certain areas. Yeah. <laughs> um, how 
how do you think it's best to be able to do that? I think you you have to understand the audience and what uh, that audience will be interested in and tell them what the benefit is to those guys. So again, mm-hmm. uh, with the 5G, if we'd have gone to the consumer audience with, uh, it can it passes this uh, EMC test or uh, it's, it's compliant. They, they're not interested, it wouldn't mean anything to them. But if we could explain your car will be sleek and seamless and won't be uh, festooned with aerials, you'll be able to keep a, a beautiful designed car, then that may appeal to them and that may sway them. So I think it's finding the right message for the right audience because then you'll get their interest. And typically uh, on, um, for, for, for example, how long did it take you and the team to come up with how to um, put forward that message in the two ways that you did? Did you get together in a nice round room with that's covered in whiteboards and sit on beanbags <laughs> or do you, you know, is it, is it ab fab? You we're know, you're, off, you're off for lunch. Yeah, and with... <laughs> it's, style. It's, real. it's like a workshop. Um, it really depends. And I think... Uh, because my background personally is in infotainment, so because I worked for all of those years uh, with sound systems, with sound system engineers, uh, navigation engineers, packaging engineers for dashboards, uh, it, that's much easier for me because I know that the packaging guy wants to make sure that it's a certain thickness that he can put it uh, under the roof uh, mount, uh, roof skin uh, and so for those ones that that's where we say we understand their world because that comes very quickly that's very natural but the work that we've been doing with metal matrix composites for example that's that requires much more thought um, we need to find different magazines there's lots of metal and composite magazines that you've probably never heard of or seen and we need to start a, to build a relationship with those editors with those writers uh, and that takes much more time. Mm, I can I can see how that would. And I think yeah. So one thing that's really important for a PR person is uh, the relationships with the media. And uh, we recently had uh, a journalist from a consumer magazine come with us to the Nurburgring, and I think he said in his inbox there was something like seven thousand unread emails. So you've really got no chance um, by just blind. Yeah. Because How does he sleep? (laughs) I don't think he reads them. I think that's why there's 7,000 on Reddit. Clearly. (laughs) You've really got to, you've got to understand that journalist or find the point to make him read your email or to, to get in touch with you. So you have to make it very relevant. There's one of the, weaknesses of a lot of PR companies is this scattergun approach of sending so if you've got a 5G aerial you'll send it to the car press you'll send it to electronics press and maybe you'll send it to the science press maybe you'll send it to the motoring editors at the nationals for a lot of them it's not interesting you need to find the particular angle or the right image rather than the text that's more important to them so understanding what they want um is crucial because they won't pick up the phone to you and they'll just uh, put you into spam or you'll never get you'll never get um, featured so spend as much time as you can understanding the audience understanding those journalists what do they like do they not like being contacted on a friday because that's the press day 
and that's how you can do a better job. Yeah, it's it's fully understanding your audience, which in this instance is the, is the press. Yeah. Is understanding their, their motivations, <clears throat> their needs, their desires as well. Yeah. Um, and, th- and that sounds like just fantastic advice for anybody who's interested in getting into PR at all. Um, to to start thinking about that if they if they haven't taken that step into it um, as well because uh, it, it is everyone's busy to a degree or another but we all think we're busy some of us genuinely are some of us are not I'm not that's just in case my wife's yeah. listening um, so. <laughs> So uh, it, it is making sure that you target it properly to get hold of someone and not be and not fall down the trap of clickbaity either. Yeah, and um, because the that, right because... person at a magazine, that's really if you've got a technology story, uh, let's say you've got a new tire, don't send it to the consumer affairs editor at that magazine, and, and probably don't send it to the editor themselves send it to the products guy or the Mm. technology editor so you've really got to understand the publications and the people that will do something with your work and we always uh, invite people to come and do placements with us uh, and we don't do those for free we pay people i think if they're going to come and do some work for you you shouldn't just expect it for free i see a lot of that and i Mm -hmm. think that's very disappointing um and the last three or four years we've had primarily motorsport journalists actually or young aspiring journalists come and uh, spend some time with us and that's great because we've shown them our side of the fence and the things that we have to deal with but also built a relationship that I know as they progress through uh, life and positions that they'll remember remember what we did yeah absolutely no I said that's a great thing and I, and I, I th- completely agree with you on the the work front if somebody does work for you then they deserve paying uh, as you know whatever can be afforded for that work so yeah, yeah. I think no, that's great that's great to hear the big agencies don't they offer free placements or experience yeah, yeah. periods that seems very unfair it's the, the exposure and all that well that doesn't that doesn't pay rent no or, or put food on the table <laughs> so it's expensive so, yeah, and and all it does is just mean that only the rich can go. Yeah. Which doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get the best people. No, I agree. No. So, yeah, the, the offers there, people want to come and do replacement or learn, um, we'll always try and make that work. Oh, that's excellent. That's great to hear. Okay, um, I think it's time to turn on to the quickfire questions. Yeah. And I'm going to start with the one I always do, which is uh, what currently excites you about the motoring world? I think it's the opportunities that are out there at the moment, that there are so many opportunities for small manufacturers, large manufacturers, cars of all different types. Um, I think there's just a world of potential. And with uh, new technologies coming along, that everybody has a place, everybody has a chance to survive, and I think that's that's great. Mm-hmm. Okay, then what currently worries you about the motoring world? Well, I think a car's being quiet. <laughs> it worries me. <laughs> and I was in my back garden today and I heard a car going up the lane. I immediately picked up, and it's probably something from the 90s. But cars are so quiet, and there's the safety thing, but where's the emotional connection with these things if you think about 
Uh, you know, I'd go back. That whole reason that I wanted to buy an Escort was that induction roar in the forest. Uh, and that, that has stayed with me for all those years. How are we going to attract the next generation of customers? Is it going to be through technology? Is it going to be through user experience? Um, but the sound worries me. I'm from that generation. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting one, um, particularly with uh, ele- um, electrical cars or electric vehicles, not electrical, yeah. electric vehicles. Andrew, come on. Oh, dear. It's not that late at night yet <laughs> uh, with, with electric vehicles. Is there it isn't a sound. There is there is no sound to stir the emotion. I'm, I'm totally with you that, the you know, you you had older cars I mean it, it was on wheeler dealers the other day they had a fulva and it wasn't a loud exhaust but it was just a particular note yeah and you sort of went oh yeah that's yeah. great oh, and you you don't get those these days you know no. there's a lot of things because you know noise pollution that sort of stuff and um, I'm presuming the technology that goes into exhaust these days as well for gases and things like that restrict the noise that comes out a bit uh, and the way the engines produce their power nowadays um so when you get to evs it's how how do manufacturers make that an engaging fun experience without because it could they could easily just become a white good Mm, a commodity yeah Uh, and i think that's i think moving further on that is becoming more and more of a problem for manufacturers anyway because So many cars are beginning to look like other brands' car, yeah. you know, it, it, particularly if you get them in profile. You sort of go, well, okay, what's the difference between that one and this one? Yeah. And why Why do I want that one? You know, And it's people are splitting hairs on why you should choose this one over that one. And yeah. it's, it's tricky. It, it is very tricky. And I think that's one of the, and as much as they've got emissions is probably their biggest challenge at the minute, I think that is close second for how do you keep people interested in your vehicles yeah. on an emotional level. Yeah, and I think my the other sort of note I had on on what worries me is the apathy from younger people about cars. Uh, and I know I said I was probably the only person at school that was interested in them, but ch- children, teenagers, there's, there's not that same. Uh, desire for freedom that the car gave me Uh, you can get in contact with your friends relatives via social media phones facetime whatever whereas uh, myself if i went to go and see my friends who lived at the other end of the town it was a car journey and it was fun to do that and i don't think the car has that same sense of freedom that it perhaps once did no absolutely for me i lived in the countryside so you know it was 20 30 miles to go and visit friends because i i was sent away to boarding school so (laughs) uh, you know if i went to go see them then it was at least an hour's journey to go and see friends so you know a car was frankly uh, i felt it was a basic human right at that time (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it, it is the fact that people don't need a vehicle to to grant them in inverted commas freedom is an interesting one that perhaps because driving a lot of the time is a chore as well nowadays. Mm, yeah, 
it's it's difficult there's so many roads are restricted in speed and many of them for good reason and i'm not i'm not condoning anyone speeding by the way but going when you go out of a town you expect it to be 60 and so many particularly in lancashire now so many roads are 40 mile an hour and you're driving along them and you're thinking why is this 40 yeah, yeah. Uh, and so so you're having to concentrate even more because you're going right i'm going to make sure i'm not going over 40 and but this is you know an open road type thing so everything is is tricky i mean i i struggle to remember sometimes or I can go a long, long periods of times without having got in a car just to go for a drive. Mm. And 15 years ago, I couldn't, Yeah. 20 years ago, I, I, I've got, I would have just jumped in the car and just, you know, a nightlight tonight. Well, yeah, yeah let's get on the road. It's dry. Yeah. It's okay. the summer. Yeah. Windows down. Let's go out and enjoy it. And I don't think people do that these days. No, I don't think they do. So Not that, that doesn't help yeah. with the whole emotional connection either. No, it's a bigger <laughs> Because the experience you're having in them is not necessarily a pleasant one. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Difficult. Anyway, yeah. Oh, oh, I don't want. I don't want to go. We too haven't far got the answer yet. <laughs> no, 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 no. Absolutely not. Uh, okay. Then. So, uh, what has been your favourite car to drive, and why is that? Um, toss up between probably one of the Caterhams. Just the purity of those cars. Just uh, as you say, just one of the seven. <laughs> one of the, I can't cheat. As, as one does have. <laughs> <laughs> Just living in a small house, got no food, but all about cars. Um, but yeah, I think just the purity. That is that is definitely a car. That and the um, Mark One Elise are, are cars I really want to try um, because I've heard so many good things, and and I don't think it's I would be disappointed in the whole never meet your heroes type thing. I think yeah. the experiencing that uh, driving at it, almost its core element, the, the as you said, the purity of it, I think... There is nothing would... else, is there? There's no uh, audio system. There's no... Uh, some of them have heaters. Some of them have screens. But there's there's no other interference. It's it's very pure. So, um, yeah, I think that would have to be the one. Okay. Oh, well, that's a very good one. Um, what has been your least favourite car to drive and why was that? Um, I think we had, uh, my wife had an Audi A4 as a company car at one point, mm-hmm. and it just was so breathless. It was one of those FSI, the very early ones. Oh, okay. It was very the, so much weight over the nose, felt really heavy, beautifully assembled, uh, but just no engagement um, and so breathless for a for a car of that period Mm. so yeah put that one in the crusher (laughs) okay definitely (laughs) probably is already i should check i do check do you do that where you look on the dvla website no i can't i can't can't look back i can't look back (laughs) i don't don't look back at my because there's some in there that were in my in my history that are absolute stinkers and there's some in there they go oh that, go on, I which, really go on which one that. would be uh, the real stinker then? Uh, the 827 Vitesse. <laughs> um, not even the Honda V6 engine could save that. That was <laughs> by far the worst car I've had. Don't tell Chris Pollitt that you've said no, that. We've already had many conversations about yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've agreed to disagree on it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah. Oh, it did get it. It, it, uh, I I dragged it to the scrapyard because it eventually just completely went. Um, <laughs> so the, that was I got fifty quid for it. Uh, also, just another um, point about cars is we recently did a a day driving thirteen hundred uh, courses at Birmingham Wheels with some journalists. I think if you look on Car Magazine, you can uh, see a story about it. But that ability to drive a car at the limit even though it probably had 40, 50 brake horsepower, uh, is a huge, uh, hugely satisfying experience because there is no car I think you can buy today um, and any road where you can safely and legally drive the car like you did with the first few weeks after you passed your test. It's... yeah. It's um it's a fantastic experience. I think a few of the journalists, some of them very experienced road testers, said the same. It's like, oh, it's so much fun to drive something on the door handles. And I think uh, that type, it costs nothing for a car like that. You can buy on £50 um, and just take it to, to, to an oval. That, those experiences are perhaps what we need to give the next generation, that cars can be really good fun. Yeah, it's it's showing that they can be fun in the right environment, isn't it? And yeah. Because uh, when I passed my test back in <clears throat> a while ago, uh, <laughs> I got <laughs> I um, my first car was a, a Polo S, one point three four speed yeah, gearbox. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's very important. Um, but it was the the hatchback one uh, where there was the bread van. So it was the yes. hatchback version yeah. of that. And the reason I was able to get that is my dad saw a bad accident on the news and he said the car was just basically nothing left and the person had walked out of it and it was a polo. So he said, well, they're obviously safe. Said, okay. <laughs> yeah. And and he did like one that was a little bit nippier than uh, others. So then when we went to go and test, he was like, oh, that's okay. Yeah, we can, we can have that one. I was like, oh, that's brilliant. I had it. And it was a brilliant car because... It allowed me to do uh, to learn to drive. Okay, you pass yeah. your test, but then you learn to drive, don't you? And it allowed me to learn to drive in a safe way where I, I, I didn't have any prangs in it. I was very lucky. Um, and I got to learn things like the limits. You know, th- you don't drive like that in these places and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. But fortunately, you know, I, I wasn't too crazy and didn't have any accidents. And it... I've got such fond memories of it. I mean, I bet if I got in one now, I'd be going, oh, this is grim yeah. or something. Because, <laughs> you know, technology has obviously moved so far yeah. on in the 20-odd <clears throat> years since that car was out. Uh, <laughs> and you, But it is that there was only the driving, a radio and the fan. There was not even air con. So, you know, and it was wind-down windows. So you were talking of purity. You know, you, it was you were man and machine, as it were, driving, um, not in any great way but it was the things it allowed me to do and going back to what we were saying earlier about the emotions an emotional tie to the cars to to the the vehicle you've got and it's enabling that to happen and it's just yeah yeah, absolutely getting a a small car with a tiny engine is brilliant fun and i think that's what you can see people have said about the um the up gti yes yeah generally is everyone's gone it's not particularly quick, but it's brilliant because you're going flat out everywhere. Yeah. Um, you can't do that these days yeah. in even the most basic of cars because you're just going too fast. 
So yeah, absolutely. Sorry, yeah. I've, I've gone off. No, I agree. Yeah, again. We're together. <laughs> um, okay. Have I asked this one? What car would you like to own next? Uh, Renault Four. I think I need to tick that box. So okay, <laughs> that's that's on the list. But um, we're not allowed any more cars at the moment. <laughs> Is worry. it a one in one out policy now? Uh, yeah. So we've got. I didn't mention we've also got a Ford Ka, which okay. uh, I just bought to save. It was a, a very old lady, ninety, who'd given up driving and she'd had it from new, never taken out in the rain. Always had the Ford garage service every year. No rust. Still got all the stickers on the suspension parts on the rear subframe. Oh and wow! I just thought I can't. I can't let that car go to a, to a teenager. I've got to save it. So speak um, to the Ford Heritage I, Fleet. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I did mention it to the guys. So if you ever need one, I said oh, we, we've got one already. But um, uh, yeah, it, it's just uh, it's just like new. It's it's better condition than the Mazda. Really, it's a uh, it's incredible time. Watch. She'd even bought Ford wiper blades every time and a oh. a Ford battery. So it was just one to keep. Worth nothing, yeah. literally worth nothing, but uh, I, had to, I had to save it. No, that's, that's great work. Um, what is your favourite road to drive on? Well, I was thinking about this. I think uh, what's always fun is to drive on roads that have been used for motorsport competitions okay. just because that that's a chance. So one of my best friends... Uh, lives in Guernsey and he lives next to the Val d'Etaire hill climb um, mm-hmm. which is a general road if you've ever been to Guernsey you've probably driven because there aren't that many roads there uh, but the ability to drive on a road that becomes a racetrack or a sprint or hill climb I think that's really quite cool so I'd pick one of those probably that one okay that's excellent we have not had that one before that's brilliant <laughs> Um, what is the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? That is really tricky. I think um, the I didn't spec it because it's a used car, but the four series has come with a wireless charger, uh, and there's all, there's a USB port next to it. So what's the point? <laughs> it seems to charge much faster. Uh, with the USB port than the wireless charger, so I'm going to consign that one to the bin. It's yeah, waste. sometimes technology is being thrown, particularly at the moment, it feels <clears> like <throat> technology is being thrown in for the sake of it Yeah, because they can. And yeah. you sort of go, well, I'd rather you didn't worry about that and did, you know, worried about something else on the car. Yeah. <laughs> spend Definitely. spend the money on that rather than this bit here because this is yeah. you know we can we can cope with the wire. We'll be all right. We'll live. <laughs> it's complete redundancy. So uh, yeah, waste of time that one. Okay, then a penultimate question. Um who do you think I should talk to after speaking to you? Well, uh, I think uh have you we should speak to somebody like Tim Sugden, the racing driver. Uh, because he, people will probably know him from racing touring cars in the 90s, but he has so many jobs in motorsport uh, that you wouldn't know about that he does. And he's such a great guy to chat to. So he's a team manager, a race engineer. He manages drivers. Um, he does uh, driving days. 
he does some Formula 2 stock car racing as well, which is a huge passion of mine, the short circuit stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. I would definitely say he is a good guy to speak to and people would probably be amazed at how many hats he has to wear. Okay, I will uh, add then, him to my hit list, uh, that's for sure. And Jacob Ebree, the photographer, I don't know if you've ever spoken to him, but again, uh, got some great stories uh, and does a lot of work, not just motorsport photography, but uh, for car manufacturers. And uh, I think it's very challenging for photographers because particularly when we speak to some clients, they say, oh, just take a picture with an iPhone, that'll be fine. But uh, these days, a picture is so valuable, um, more than the words for some attention spans, uh, it's definitely yeah. worth spending the money on a on a decent snapper. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can I can take a I can take a photo, but I can't take a picture. Yeah. Um, and I've learnt that more and more, seeing more of the uh, the particularly the motoring uh, photographers, and seeing what they produce. Uh, and I'm, it's not necessarily it's not I'm not just thinking from the the tech difference of use but i'm just thinking the way that they frame a picture the the story they're telling um i've got a few uh, i want to go through a little series of talking to motoring photographers so i shall uh, i shall add jacob to that list yeah um, because be a good guy. i think i think they they do some amazing stuff that we don't necessarily appreciate yeah um but uh, I, I definitely want to i want to pick their brains and find out you know what made them first pick up a camera, but then why they take a photograph in the way they do and things like that. So brilliant. Thank you for that. I think that's a good chat. Excellent. Um, Right. Well, last, last question before I say thank you. And that is uh, what are the best ways for people to follow what you do or get in touch or um, maybe ask for you to help them with a campaign or two? Yeah. Um, So obviously we have a website for the Ilan Mm -hmm. for the business. So that's ilan hyphen pr.com uh, but you can see me on elan underscore nick on twitter or nick b27 on instagram but there's lots of and uh, not much client stuff on there it's mainly banger racing or cars that i've spotted <laughs> so uh, some purists may need to turn away from that that is one thing uh, my sin uh, that i have so <laughs> go in with eyes wide open we all have hobbies we all have hobbies yeah uh, right well i'll make sure that those uh those links are in the show notes uh and uh i wish you every success because with the way that technology is happening uh and changing and becoming so much more integral to the car journey uh, and the story of the car uh, i can't see you getting bored um, or, or not having work to do so um you know best of luck with that and and being able to 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 tell the stories of these of the technology um you know that that's it's just not easy it, it it's not easy to get across something that people will expect to just happen and work and why they should be interested in so you know i I doff my cap to you for the, oh, the work you. that you do do and, and wish you every success with it. Thank you. And thank you for this opportunity to chat. It's, it's very rare in these days that people have the time to chat in such in depth uh, and very selfishly about all the things that I like. So uh, that's a very <laughs> big privilege to do that. No, not at all. I, I mean, that's, that's what Rearview is all about. It's all about, let's find out about the people behind 
behind the companies and behind the the Twitter handles and all that. And no, it's, no, I'm the I'm the one who's uh, very lucky that you've said yes. So thank you very much. No, thank you. Thanks once again to Nick for coming on Rearview and chatting with me. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did. And if you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. If you think what we do here on Rearview and the Motoring Podcast is worth some of your money, then please do go and support us in our efforts by going to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support and clicking the Patreon button. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about this show. I think the guests who come on here have got great stories and I want as many people as possible to hear them. So until next time, that was Nick Bailey, I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.